0: So we're still going through uh, the book of Romans, and what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a section in Romans tonight, beginning in chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to take a look at chapter 12 and part of chapter 13, and we're taking an unorthodox approach to this book because I think to get to the heart of what Paul is trying to do with um, this letter is really better read. from the back to the front. And what I mean by that is we've already seen a couple of weeks ago that he's writing to some house churches in Rome. Uh, We already know that there's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and there's um, this division that is going on that's designated as the strong and the weak. We also know that um, Paul empowered a woman by the name of Phoebe to take this letter to Rome and to read it to the various house churches. And uh, so last week, we are dealing with uh, the strong and the weak elements that are mentioned in chapter 14. Now we come to a section that I think verses 1 and 2 are probably um, very familiar to most people, and we'll get to that in a moment but the whole section is really talking about Christ-likeness or another uh, term for that is Christ deformity. How How do we form to the image of Christ? And I think that's the ultimate end that Paul is looking to do here in the book of Romans. But to get to that, we need to climb the mountain of religion for a moment because I think the Jews and the Gentiles are both religious people Uh, but they are different types of religions and somehow they need to be able to move toward a mutual understanding of each other, a mutual respect for each other, uh, the ability to see that they're all a part of one movement that Paul calls the body of Christ. So you'll notice on the slide here uh, that an embodied God orientation involves everything, the ancient world included, and what we call religion. Every culture has religion of one sort or another, and what does that religion look like in their culture? And that's at the heart of this section a little bit because there's a lot of religious terminology that can be uh, referred to in this section. But Paul all relates it to the a person of Christ, and will use a metaphor that we we use in speaking of different body parts. The body of Christ is made up of different types of people. But I think there's another element to it that is important to understand. We'll get to that in a moment. So the key question, I think, in this section is how will these two different religious experiences coexist alongside each other? You know, even though we come to Christ and... Um, and we have a new outlook, we have a new birth, Uh, we are given the Holy Spirit, yet at the same time, I don't think we ever fully uh, move on from the culture that we grew up in, and we kind of carry that with us wherever we go. Um, We just mentioned in a moment ago, uh, romper room, okay, Uh, as we were just talking with each other. Well, that comes out of a cultural setting, and uh, most people don't even know what that refers to. If they do, they're a certain age bracket. If, um, if, the, if you were to say that in a different country, nobody would know what you're talking about. So um, it's important to understand that we carry with us all of this baggage that makes us who we are. Now, a key element, I think here, is this statement, religion is as religion does. And what we mean by that is you can have philosophical religion, but what it boils down to what a religion really believes is what it does with what it believes. And I think that's the whole point of the book of James. We studied uh, that uh, in our previous study when we went through the book of James that um, faith must have an outward expression to it. And um, James says in that little epistle, uh, I'll show you my faith by what I do, uh, not just what I say. So religion is as religion does. You can claim that religion is peaceful, but if it produces a lot of uh, division or in some case possible uh, violence, then that's really at the heart of what the religion is. So themes that are common in religion will crisscross uh, in various cultures and I want you to notice that as we get going here uh, today and it's going to jump right out at you in chapter 12 verse 1 and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and I think you'll see what I'm saying. Paul says in verse 1, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Stop right there. The minute you say the word sacrifice, you're using a religious connotation. What does that mean? Sacrifice. Uh, to the Jews, it obviously means the entire sacrificial system that was built up in the instructions of the Torah. To the Romans, though, that might be something else even though it's a religious word that has a crossover so having said that what it's interesting what paul will do in verses one and two of chapter 12 he's not so much concerned about the religious sacrifices as much as an embodied sacrifice the way it works itself out among the people that uh you are Living with, sharing life with, worshiping with, that type of thing. So the full uh, two verses reads like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There's another religious word, sacrifice, worship. "Do Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will, the will of God. That's another religious connotation as well. So there, it's kind of loaded with religious ideas here, but that means two different things to different two different groups of people. So look at the slide here. The sacrifice of the Romans to God And to one another happens only because of God's goodness to the undeserving, to the idolatrous, to the disobedient, and to the sinful. If you back up a couple of verses into verse 30 through 32, uh, Paul is going to talk a little bit about what they were delivered from. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, uh, have now received mercy as a result of uh, their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, that he may have mercy on them all. So what he is talking about is the idea here of God uh, setting these people up to understand that what they need the most, they need from God and uh, this God has proved himself to be a merciful God to the disobedient, um, and that is primarily in in the idea of those that have wandered away, um, as you see up here, those that are idolatrous, so disobedient, and that type of thing. Now, you have on the other side the Jewish people who would offer all kinds of sacrifices all the time in, uh, in the temple and so forth. So point number two, instead of offering animals and grains to the gods and local shrines, if they're Gentile, or in the temple in Jerusalem, if they're Jews, Christian sacrifice is an embodied way of life offered to the invisible God, that present God, and what it relates to primarily is how you treat one another. So Paul's replacing the ordinary understanding of sacrifice, whether it's the Roman acts of sacrifice in their homes uh, or public altars, or to the Jews within the temple, with the idea of embodying Christlikeness and treating one another accordingly. So let me stop there. I don't know if I've lost you or not, but he's using religion as a way of replacing what they were doing was something better and then he gets into chapter 12 using a metaphor called the body of christ and i'll get to that in a moment but do you have some thoughts there okay so hopefully i haven't lost you he sets up all this religious terminology here in chapter 12 And then he begins to talk about different things and he embodies what religion should look like. And one way you can see that is in some of the prayers that he offers. And um, you see that right before chapter 12 in verses 33 through 36, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths uh, beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay them, for from him and through him and for him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. The book of Romans has all kinds of prayers kind of couched in the text, so go over to chapter 15 for a moment, I'll give you another sample of this, In chapter 15, take a look at verse 13. So here, very short, but it is one of those religious activities that would jump out as Phoebe reads this letter to the house churches. And here's another prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you read Romans, you're looking for religious terminology, and there's a bunch of it in the early chapters. But the way to get to understand what he's trying to do is here in this section, he's talking about uh, sacrifice. He is talking about prayer, or at least he uses prayer. He talks about the will of God, and he talks about worship. All those are religious activities. Uh, So as Phoebe reads, not only these prayers, but also um, this entire letter, these things begin to kind of shape how they're using religion, how they're viewing religion, and how they are viewing each other. Phoebe is going to read this, and um, if they take note of it and they especially see the prayers that Paul offers on their behalf, they begin to understand that there's a whole new way of orienting themselves towards God rather than through the external sacrifices that both the Gentiles and the Jews would normally use as a way to try to create some type of atonement, reconciliation, reconciliation. Some of those words that come earlier in the book. So Paul is kind of requesting through the way he's using this language. Um, he's requesting that these Jews and these Gentiles treat each other with virtues that matter the most to him. And that is unity, peace, love, uh, all those things. So um Yeah, I think that helps us to kind of understand the early part of the book of Romans, which we haven't touched yet. But when you dive into the book of Romans from the beginning, you use all of these theological concepts and all these theological terms. But it's only here that we begin to see why he's doing that. He's deconstructing their religious experiences, whether they're Gentile or they're Jew, and reorienting them to a new way of a spiritual sacrifice to God that is most honoring to him. that makes sense to everybody? Any other thoughts on that? Okay. So now we are introduced to this idea of the body of Christ. So verses 3 through 8, let's see what it has to say. So he begins to talk about the body. And in this case here, um, verse four, for just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. Now, I think one of the things that we see is sometimes religion can prevent us from seeing the overall goal of treating each other as members of one body. Now, to live an embodied life for God is to live with other bodies in humility. That's the way he starts out. Don't think of yourself highly, more highly than you ought to think. Or in other words, we might say, don't be super minded in the sense that I'm better than you, and again, he has this idea of the weak and the strong in his mind as he's saying this, because supermindedness, that idea of elevation, is one that is a basic claim to power and privilege. I'm better than you are. So Paul has in mind here um, the, the weak and the strong and what he's talking about is how they each are not respecting in humility the other side. And we talked about that last week that uh, the weak still wants to hold to the dietary laws of, of the uh, Mosaic Covenant or the Torah. And, um, and the strong say, well, I've been liberated from that. I don't need to keep those dietary laws. And with that also comes the other Things as well. That is the idea of uh, circumcision and the Sabbath. Some of those other things that Paul brings up more in the book of Galatians than in the book of Romans. So, body life means humbly respecting each other from uh, where um, uh, from where we come from, how we all bring different gifts to the table in our relationship with one another. And not to be super-minded or uh, prideful, thinking that I'm better than somebody else. Now, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here in a second. But before I do, do you have any questions, comments? Now, most of the time when we read body life, we think of Christ as the head and the church is the body, Right. We primarily take that description because that's the metaphor Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. Not all of you are arms and legs and and that type of thing, that you are all different parts of a body. I'm not so sure that's what Paul is doing here in the idea of body life. And here's the reason why. So why is he calling the church a body? One of the things both the Romans and the Greeks used was the same word, body. It's the Greek word soma for the body politic. That is the idea of a gathering of people. So look here, both the Romans and the Greeks used body, soma for the body politic. And the term church, ecclesia, was used for a gathering of citizens, demos into a political assembly so here's the curveball maybe what paul is doing in romans but we um because we allow first corinthians to influence us in the way he talks about the body there christ is the head and we are the body not everyone is an arm not everyone is a leg right okay But notice here, he does not use the same imagery. He uses the same word body, but he doesn't call Christ the head and us the arms and the legs. Maybe what he's doing here, because it's in Romans and not in 1 Corinthians, is he's combining uh, um, these cultural ideas that in society, if you want to get along... Somehow you have to understand that all people make up the body politic, that is the way life runs. So whether we like it or not, whatever side of the aisle you might find yourself on, we need Republicans and we need Democrats because it's all a part of the body politic of a group of citizens that, um, that are gathered together in one place, in this case, a country, the United States, but here, he's using some cultural ideas because that's what Rome was all about. The Roman Empire, when you think about it, because of the vast territory that it, um, that it ruled, had all kinds of people in it, right? If you rule all the way from England to India, think of the variety of different types of people in those cultures. And yet, the great idea, the big idea in the Roman Empire was we will all live in peace, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, as long as you hold to these certain things, because this is the body politic that will bring an end to the civil wars that occurred in the Roman Empire. And Caesar is the head. And as long as you will hold to the body politics, the uh, the Pax Romana, we'll all be able to get along. And we won't have to send a delegation of Roman soldiers to put you back in line if you're in rebellion. So now Paul is going to give this whole idea a different twist. And the different twist is this. Yeah, there is a body politic, but it's not the Roman uh, empire. It's not the British empire. It's not the Indian empire. It's not any empire. It's Christ's kingdom and this body politic is how you take all kinds of people gentiles and jews you bring them together and in humility not being super minded not judging or criticizing or condemning the other group but you see yourself as one body and we all contribute to it through a variety of different gifts. It says here in verse five, so in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. In other words, the similarity with 1 Corinthians 12 is you don't cut off your arm, you need your arm, all right? Here, it's the idea you don't cut off one section of society because you need them and, and they need us. So peace is achieved in this body politic, through the recognition of mutual service. And that's primarily done through spiritual gifts or the idea of a gifting or a talent that is given to each person. Now, if you notice in verse four, and then I'm gonna let you uh, ask any questions that you have, because this might be a new idea to you. In verse four, it says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. That's the Greek word praxis, which is the same idea um, of practicing something. It, it's practical. In other words, it's not something just theoretical. It's not this idea of we'll all get along if we all think the same way. No, you'll all get along. You'll be peaceful if you put into practice these ideas of respecting each other in humility. And these gifts are given both to the strong and to the weak, not to just one group. It's not like the strong have all the gifts and the weak are dependent upon them. No, the strong and the weak are equally needed because these are relative terms, strong and the weak. Last week, we said, those that were strong in the law could actually be weak. Those who are strong in liberty could actually be weak when they do not respect the other side. Okay, boy, that was a, 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 a lot of information. Let's dissect it through your comments or questions. You have any? Either I've totally lost you, or it's clear. I don't know. But <clears throat> So think of this here, in this section of Romans, more as the body politic. How do you take various people who have various outlooks, and how do you get to live with one another? Well, that's where he's going in verse 9. Notice the next verse. He will say, here's how you live in peace and in unity. So verses 9 through 21. So this is all the way to the end of the chapter. Notice how practical these verses are. Love must be sincere. Okay? It's not to be pseudo. It's not to, you're not loving to set somebody up so you can use them. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. To leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All of those are kind of one-line commandments on how to get along with people that are so dramatically different than us. Um, Each of them are commandments be devoted to one another, honor one another. All of these are, I mean, this isn't like suggestions. These are in the in the command, um, uh, you know, tense of uh, Paul's writing here. And so he's giving this commandment to be able to get along. So anyone who understands the tensions that are going on in the Roman house churches understands as quite an accomplishment to bring these two groups together, right? To get help them to get along. We do not always think of the book of Romans in that way. When we think about division, we think of Cor- the Corinthians, because, I mean, you know, that's the way Paul r- writes in 1 Corinthians especially. But there's the same type of issues that are going on in among these house churches here. Um, and it's interesting when you get to the end, so this is kind of like the punchline, go over to chapter 16 for a second. When you come to chapter 16, in between, <laughs> this, is, this is something, in between all these greetings at the in chapter 16 and all these people that are mentioned it's interesting that he says this look at verse 17 i urge you brothers and sisters to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned keep away from them for such people are not serving our lord christ but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the minds of naive people Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. (laughs) In other words, these divisive things that happen is a diabolical work, and God's going to crush that work. That is prompted by Satan. That's the idea of verse 20, because God is trying to bring together this body politic of one people uh, loving and serving and helping each other in the midst of their differences and their ethnicity. So, all right, thoughts? Yeah, that's I, yeah, go.
1: Yeah,
0: okay. So they're talking about. I know you can't hear the chatter here, um, but. They're talking, go back to chapter 12, and they're confused about verse 20. So he's talking about loving, being sincere, all these type of things. (laughs) And then verse 20 says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Now, what does that mean? Yeah. So... (laughs) Um, this is probably a cultural idiom of some sort that's going on here. So in the, um, in the NIV, uh, study Bible I have here, it's called the first century study Bible. I'll, I'll read you the note that's at the bottom on this verse. So in verse 20, burning coals, this is typically understood as a description of divine judgment and there's probably a quotation from Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22. However, it appears that Paul used the phrase in a positive sense rather than in a negative sense of judgment. Some have suggested Paul was using the image of an Egyptian ritual in which a penitent carried coals on their head as a sign of repentance rather than judgment. So... Believe me, that verse is up for a lot of debate in terms of what Paul is trying to get at here. But if you have a study Bible, you will notice there is a footnote that says that it's coming out of Proverbs uh, 25, verses 21 and 22. So Paul pulls this verse out of Proverbs and he quotes it. What we don't know is what the idiom is suggesting. He has not been talking about judgment in this section at all, even though that's the way we take it, because you're putting burning coals on his head. It's probably some type of cultural thing that is going on here. So Kent Dobson, in his first century study Bible, gives you one of those, and that is the idea that this is the idea of an Egyptian ritual in which a penitent carried coals on their head as a sign of repentance rather than judgment. Um, in other words, you got to take that in in conjunction with verse 17 and 18 and 19. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone and here's the key: Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, "It is mine to repay. I will. Re, uh, it is mine to avenge. I will repay." Says the Lord. Then he quotes that Proverbs twenty-five. So what I have heard also is in this: in this figurative language, when you choose not to repay evil with evil. When you choose not to enact revenge, then there is a sense of conviction um, that could possibly lead to repentance that comes into the hearts of other people um, by virtue of the fact that you are not acting in the body politic as most people would do. And that is, if you hit me, I hit you. If you uh, punch me, I punch you back stronger. Okay, or harder. <clears throat> now, someday when we have coffee with Paul in heaven, we will probably ask him, What on earth were you thinking? By putting it that way. And he will he would he will say to you and to me, Well, it made perfect sense to me, and it made perfect sense to those that were hearing it, because they were first century. We're twenty first century. Yeah, I think there's something cultural that's going on here. Yeah, that that cultural idiom had a certain meaning to it. So, see if we can come up with an example. Um, yeah.
2: Hey, Larry.
0: Yeah, go.
2: I was always uh, heard of that as being kind and then you're um, like in the next verse he says, don't overcome um, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good and then that way you're doing good in order to counteract sort of the you know evil and then by being nice, it's actually a punishment for them because they're like expecting, yeah, you know, yeah. you to lash out or whatever.
0: I think that dynamic can Uh, have have an effect in some situations. Um, Again, I think that people get hung up on turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, as we find in the Sermon on the Mount, that type of thing. I, I think at the heart of it all is we don't escalate. The, uh, the violence or the hatred. And this might be a cultural way of saying that very same thing, that you are living your life in such a way that you are more of the solution than you are the problem. Because there are groups, by the way they react to certain things that happen to them, it only escalates. You know, it, it, it is never something that is tamed. I think that's probably what Paul's trying to get at here is that be part of the solution. Don't be part of the problem. Um, And he's using a very cultural way of expressing that. And, and we know sometimes if we do the right thing and we don't hit back, figuratively speaking um, that the other person should feel guilty about it. That doesn't always happen, but yeah, it doesn't true. mean you, it doesn't mean you did the wrong thing, though, because you were trying to be part of a solution rather than part of the problem. That's the best way I can put it. But, other thoughts on that?
2: At what point? At what point do you think it's like people pleasing, or you're being walked all over versus yeah. you're trying to make peace with? Because I feel like sometimes, like. I have a sister who's always wanted to fight. And I and instead of just fighting with her, I just just ease the strife, you know, yeah. and I'm always the one I just can see door and in a way it feels like she's walking all over me, but I want to be at peace with her. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I think you have to have an inner conviction of uh, of your inner Popeye. And that is when you get to the point, you say, that's all I can stand and I can't stands no more. Um, And I think that doesn't mean you get even. What that means is you build stronger boundaries. And um, you can do that without being hateful or without uh, enacting revenge in some way. Um, But I think all of us at times get slapped around enough to realize that our good intention is being taken advantage of, like you said. And at that point, I think it's a matter of boundaries and saying that's, you know, I'm not going to let you do that anymore. I'm not going to escalate things and I'm not going to argue with you and that type of thing. I'm just not going to let that happen anymore. So, um, You know, and that's not wrong. I think that I think what Paul has in mind here is the idea that don't don't be the cultural norm, which is I hit back harder, and then they hit back harder, and I hit back even harder. That it just escalates. Um, and I like
2: an eye for an eye,
0: an eye for an eye. Yeah, but uh, it's you know it's a difficult situation. Uh, When you are stuck in a situation where you've bent over backwards and you, you have been to the point where you've been a people pleaser uh, and even that's not working. And maybe the other angle to it is in trying to be a people pleaser, I have not built enough boundaries uh, that is going to protect my inner spirit because The more you get walked on, the more bitter you can become. And I think that you have to protect yourself from that too. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: Thanks. I agree. Mm -hmm.
0: Anybody else? But you notice how practical this section is in terms of Paul is trying to get at the heart of what's going to enable these two groups to get along? So, okay, let's move on. So, in these um, chapters, there's some practical principles, and I'm not going to read every verse here. Um, he talks about stumbling blocks, avoid setting up stumbling blocks and tripping over stumbling blocks. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's something that we do that people trip over, or what other people do that we slip on and fall down or what that type of thing. Secondly, he says, walk in love for the sake of the weak. He seems to place, so here, go over to chapter 14 real quick. Uh, In verse 15 of that chapter, he seems to put the, the onus of trying to create peace on the person that perceives himself to be the stronger of the two. It says here in verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ has died. So the responsibility is laid upon those who perceive themselves strong. I don't need to adhere to the dietary laws of, the, uh, of Judaism. And yet at the same time, he's saying be sensitive there. Uh, there are people that might have a uh, a very sensitive conscience, and it's your responsible responsibility not to intentionally hurt them by ignoring what their conscience is saying. Number three, don't let your freedom, uh, freedom become a bad testimony in, in the body politic um, among the church, but outside of that as well. Number four, pursue peace and try to build each other up. Number five, the stronger to respect the weak's faith condition. So you're right there in chapter 14. If you go on down to verse 22, he says this. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. But Paul is saying there is, okay, you have the liberty to eat shrimp if you want. (laughs) There's going to be Jews that couldn't eat anything that's unclean. Respect that because if they go ahead and eat of it, even though they're not convinced of it being okay, then it becomes for them sin In, in the sense of they're doing what their conscience tells them not to do. So it you have to respect their conscience you might not understand it but you're to respect it. and then number six welcome each other to the table so in chapter 15 he then goes on and he talks about this idea of getting along with each other accepting one another um and so in verse 7 of chapter 15 he says accept one another then just as christ accepted you in order to bring praise to god I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Then he strings together a bunch of Old Testament quotations there. In other words, welcome each other to the table, respect each other for who they are, and uh, and honor the fact that they're different than you um and but uh, live a life of love so he exhorts them in chapter 15 to welcome one another and the foundation of that is christ is a servant both to the jews and to the gentiles and then he cites in this whole section a bunch of old testament quotations so in chapter 15 He strings together a quotation from Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah chapter 11. All of those references will be in a study Bible. It should be in the footer of your Bible, giving you uh, where, where they come from. But the ultimate goal is this prayer that we already read earlier, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy spirit. A couple of things there that I think are important. Hope is generated um, from God by the power of the Holy spirit. We're not left to do this all on our own. We need help. And the Holy spirit enables us to do so. So um, that's this section that is really talking about this body politic. Now that brings us, and we're all out of time, but that brings us to the controversial section in chapter 13, go back to chapter 13, about submitting to governing authorities. So this has been a passage that really has been taken out of context a lot of times that you're to submit to the government no matter what, because they have, uh, they've been commissioned to rule over you and, and that type of thing. But notice, notice how I set this whole thing up tonight. All of this is in a section that's telling both Jews and Gentiles how to get along. So now you have this passage in chapter 13 where it talks about submitting to governing authorities. And it begins in verse one, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, What you find here um, is how this body politic called the church is to interact with the bigger body politic, and that is the Roman Empire. How do you get along with them? Now, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that Paul is saying this specifically because the Jews that have come back to Rome after they were exiled from Rome by uh, the ruler Claudius for causing division and stuff like that, as they come back in after they've been exiled into other areas, they they need to somehow get along with the populace, not just other Christians? How do you get along with other people that are trying to live out their life and they're not Christians? So who, what institution can do that? You have a group of Christians, you have a group of non-Christians, you all have to share resources, you all have to somehow get along, you all have to have laws of some sort to be able to have mutual respect. That's why this is instituted so the jews are coming back into rome after claudius dies nero comes to the throne lifts that decree that exiled the jews out of rome they come back in is the same thing going to happen as happened before right are they going to cause a lot of problems Paul is saying no they need to subject to the governing authorities because that then will enable the, the, the body politic within the city of Rome to be able to get along. So what is their primary responsibility? So look at verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. In other words, you don't need to fear the government if you're being a good citizen. But for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. In other words, for those that do wrong, there is that governing body to enforce the law for the safety of all the people, okay? They are God's servants. Agents of wrath to bring punishment, not on those who are doing right, but on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to governing to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay them. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So. This has been a passage that really has been, oh boy, twisted for the advantage of certain politicians uh, to say one thing and and get the populace to follow. If a government is doing wrong, you have every right to resist it. That's the whole book of Acts. (laughs) Book of Acts. So the governing authorities wanted them to stop speaking in the name of christ and paul ignored that and rebelled against that every time right and that's why he was chased from one town to the other so these three things keep in mind pursue peace allow the government to to be a form of organization so that you can be at peace with one another um allow them to take care of the wrongdoer. Don't take justice into your own hands. In other words, you know, if somebody has stolen from you or worse rape or murder or something like that, don't take punishment into your own hands. Allow the governing authorities to take care of that. So what you find here, I think is a general principle of how, a body politic called the church is going to get along in a society or a bigger body politic uh, in in the uh, capital of the Roman Empire. Now notice he comes back in verse eight of that same chapter. Let no debt remain outstanding except the commitment, uh, the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Then he goes on and talks about some of those things That would disrupt the body politic. You shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not covet. So he then says, basically, here's the bottom line. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So he's just trying to say, make love your top priority. Love is always the best choice. Um, Allow those that, are commissioned by God to, to uphold the, the laws of the land for the sake of the, the citizens of that land. Let them do their job. Don't get in the way. Don't be a wrongdoer. But on a personal level, be a loving citizen. That's kind of the bottom line. Thoughts, comments? I think that's the last slide. No, I have one more. So this is what I just told you already. Romans 13 in context. Behind the letter of Romans was an event largely went unnoticed except to the Jews. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome over the Christ affair that's found in Acts 18.2. We're not really sh- sure what they did um, and what got them booted out, to tell you the truth. Um, but it is possible because he brings up the subject of taxes. Now, one of the things that they felt they, they could do is not pay their taxes as a form of rebellion. So maybe that was at the heart of why they got booted out of the city. Okay, you're not going to pay your taxes? Well, you're not going to be given the, the privilege of living in a city that has um, all of, all the perks associated with it. So, all right. and. Uh... Then he says, and I didn't realize I had a couple more slides here. Uh, He just is saying, know that the time is now. Now's the time to enact these things. The the day is near. Verse 11, he says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So you can read that. Um, It's the idea of... Take advantage of the times that you're living in. Um, You know, don't allow these opportunities to slip away from you. Um, And the bottom line, how did I begin this study tonight? Christ deformity. That's what you have in verse 14 of chapter 13. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So try to mimic, try to imitate Christ is kind of the whole bottom line of this section on how they're going to get along. All right, questions, comments?
1: You know, I think one thing that's interesting is that you have to contextualize this and thinking about what the Roman culture was like. In other words, not just issues of the people dealing with each other but living in a a society that was very immoral in some sense, you know, very, you know, just a very different kind of place. So, yeah, um, a very difficult, you know, community to live in and be a Christian, you know, so so there was not just these issues between themselves. There was the whole issue of being immersed in a society where it was, it was very different, you know, very difficult, very, very complex, very, uh, uh, I don't know, political, obviously, but also just a you know, just a rough place to live.
0: Yeah, and you have the whole Roman pantheon of gods that play into this as well. You know, who they worship, what were some of the worship practices associated with these uh, gods as well. And um, I think that's why that whole issue that we talked about last week of meat that was offered to idols came into play as such a big decision for some. So... yeah how do you know you had
1: the you had the a lot of the you know the Colosseum and all those things that went on there and and the ways in which different yeah uh, yeah it was yeah so i mean i think you have also it's that seems to me to be another complicating factor in all this is you know they weren't they weren't living in america of the 1940s or 50s or even today they were living in a uh, you know more difficult society
0: and that's why i think Paul starts the book of Romans the way he starts it. He launches into a big section in chapters one through three that is basically going to condemn everybody in sight, Jew and Gentile alike. And again, I think we don't see the purpose of that until we get to the back section of the book. But um, the reason that he he launches into that. The wrath of God is, you know, being expressed against all this ungodliness and that type of thing is because of the setting. You're exactly right. These are Roman house churches that are trying to navigate a very complex Roman world. And how did they do that? Well, the way he starts off is he's going to put everybody in their place, Jew and Gentile alike. But we'll Mm -hmm. get to that. We'll get to that section. But I think the reason I I started this the way it is, is because the way the book of Romans starts with Paul condemning everyone, we think that he's doing a theological work primarily to set up some type of systematic theology. This is very praxis oriented. He does all of this because of this group of people that we are introduced to in the back half of the book. But I think we have to keep that in mind as we begin the early chapters. This has a goal in mind. So anyways, other questions or comments? No. Right. Anybody here? No? So Romans is a difficult book, um, but hopefully it's easier when you see the context that Paul is writing, in, his purpose, his mission, his goal, all of that type of thing. I think it helps simplify some things that were introduced to in chapters one through eight of the book of Romans. All in due time, we'll get there. So, all right. Okay. Well, I hope you have a great evening. You guys, and we'll see you next time. Okay.
2: Okay. Okay. Later. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.